Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and of course, I'm very glad to have you with us as we launch another show today. There are some interesting political stories in the news. Kelly Loeffler uh, being exonerated of any uh, allegations that she uh, participated in insider trading, um, according to the Wall Street Journal's reporting on that. Uh, the fact that Governor Kemp is now openly saying that he'd love to have the Republican National Convention here if uh, the Republicans decide to move it out of Charlotte. And uh, to the two most powerful business uh, uh, groups in Georgia, the uh, State Chamber of Commerce and the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, urging the legislature when it comes back for its uh, post-virus, I don't know if you can call it a post-virus session, but the session that was suspended during the virus, uh, urging them to pass hate crimes uh, measures when they uh, get back in session. We're going to take those up later in the show, but before we do that, we're really pleased to uh, welcome today, I think, probably the hardest working person in state government today. And that's saying something, because we know there are a lot of people in state who are working hard during the coronavirus. But I'm not sure anybody's working harder than the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. We're glad to have him with us. And uh, we're joined to talk to uh, Mr. Raffensperger by uh, our regular Wednesday partner on this show, Greg Bluestein, AJC political reporter. Greg, uh, I said to you last week, it didn't feel like the same newspaper. I didn't see your byline uh, on every page. You're back to full action. I see you all over the paper again, and I'm glad I do. How are you, Greg? I'm good. I'm back from vacation and rested and tanned and ready to go. <laughs> okay. We're also joined by Mark Nisi, uh, who is an AJC reporter. And I wanted you, Mark, to be here today because nobody covers uh, the uh, news surrounding elections and voting with the kind of uh, commitment that you have. And I, I know that you're going to have a lot of questions that you're going to want to pose to the secretary. Uh, so thank you, Mark, for being here as well. I don't think Mark is hearing me right now, but we'll uh, get back to him in a minute. Let me start with you, Mr. Raffensperger, if I might. Um, first sure. of all, thanks so much for joining us. Well, my um, pleasure. Looking so, forward to it. So we know that, I think we know, that you have now, your office has now uh, had requests for something like 1.6 million absentee ballots. Is, is that number pretty accurate right now? I haven't hit that yet, but we're over 1.5. And actually, we've mailed out 1.5 million ballots. There's right now about uh, 40,000 that we have yet to go to. Uh, we've gotten the request in, and we have a little backlog of 40,000. And 1.4 million, over 1.4 million, have actually been delivered into people's mailboxes. So um, when I get, I get more emails about uh, voting than any other notes that I'm getting from listeners these days, and I'm getting a lot of them. So um, when as recently as uh, this week, I'm hearing from listeners who say, I sent him for my absentee ballot. I haven't gotten it yet. I'm worried. I'm not sure they're going to get it to me in time. 
Uh, is there? And, and we know Fulton County had a backlog, which apparently over the weekend they were able to correct. Is there any reason people should fear that they're not going to get their ballots? Will they get them in time to fill them out and send them in before the June 9th election deadline? Yes, by and large, every county is uh, you know, up to speed and has very little backlog. Fulton County is still uh, finishing up their issues that they had. But people will have their ballots in time. Uh, we The election due date to get your absentee ballot is no later than Tuesday, June 9th. So we still have plenty of time for you to receive your ballot. But right now, there's probably a million ballots that are out there and sitting on people's kitchen table. And those are the ones that we need to get back. Uh, we've received back about 500,000. So uh, there's still a million out there that have been received sitting on people's kitchen table. So we're just encouraging voters to review the, you know, all those contests and go ahead and mark it, uh, your choices, sign it, and send it back. So um, let me also make sure about another issue, um, and, and then I'm going to get Greg and Mark into this conversation. Um, it, there are people who have contacted me to say that um, they got, they've gotten different kinds of ballots. Some have a presidential a candidate on the ballot, others don't. Um, is is that based on their having? What is that based on? If you had voted for the presidential primary, then when you receive your absentee ballot, or when you show up in person with ballot mark device, if you had voted for the president to primary, then the presidential primary, you will not see that on your June ballot. But if you had not voted in the presidential primary, then it'll be on your absentee ballot or when you show up to vote in person with a ballot marking device. No one gets to vote twice, but everyone gets okay. to vote for the presidential primary. And, and there's no reason to worry about, I mean, obviously you're, you, there's no reason to worry that the vote you may have cast for president uh, back in the presidential primary ha- has been in any way uh, misplaced, canceled out. You've got it. Exactly. We have or the county's the advantage. Too. Yes, that's one of the advantages of the new system. It was actually be able to incorporate and be able to handle this complex issue. And so those votes that you made for the presidential primary, they've been, you know, secured, and those will be tallied with all the new votes for the presidential primary, you know, for this June general primary. Mark, you want to jump in? Yes, we're just seeing tremendous turnout. Um from absentee ballot, as well as in-person. You know, you'd think in-person voting during our first week of early voting would have been down because people are voting more by mail, but really it's pretty consistent with prior primary turnout rates. So I think when we see everybody voting by absentee or in-person, I think it's likely we're heading to turn out over 2 million for the primary, which is um, historically pretty high. I think we'll probably get up above 5 million for the general election in November, but for a primary, this is pretty solid. Greg? Yeah, Secretary, I have a question for you. President Trump has frequently said that mail-in ballots would lead to what he calls a rigged election, and he's he's targeted Democratic-led states that have taken similar steps as you have here in Georgia. Um, Just this morning, the president called mail-in votes, and I'm quoting here, uh, a recipe for what he calls a free-for-all on cheating, forgery, and theft. There's no evidence of that. What are you doing and what do you plan to do to push back on this line and to, and to let Georgia's know that the integrity of their vote is safe? 
Well, it's very important for people to understand that uh, we want to make sure that the person that is sending in that absentee ballot is that person, that voter. And so we have signature match. In fact, it starts at the front end when we sent out the absentee ballot application that we asked you for your birth date. And I don't know any of your uh, any of your birth dates, and you don't know mine probably. And so that's a, a good check. And then we ask for a signature. So that's the first signature match. And then we receive that. We send out the ballots to voters. We've also have uh, stood up an absentee ballot fraud task force to let voters know that if we hear about anything, if you see something that doesn't seem right, then contact our office, and then we'll go ahead and check that out. You know, we are hopeful that uh, everyone plays by the rules. We've set these guardrails in place, and we want to make sure that everyone understands that there's integrity in the system, that this isn't uh, like some other states. The other thing, last year with House Bill 316, we made it illegal to commit or to do ballot harvesting. The only person that is allowed to touch that absentee ballot is you, the voter, or someone that lives in the house with you, or if you're in the case where you have a, some disability or you need your, your, uh, need help at some level, you know, some, a caretaker could help you with you know, that ballot. But someone up, driving up and down the street cannot be picking it up and touching those ballots. And so that's important to understand that you know, we maintaining the integrity of that ballot. Some states don't do that, and you know, obviously, President Jimmy Carter and the Bipartisan Commission talked about the greatest potential area of fraud is in the absentee ballot process. And so we have to make sure we maintain some guardrails so that we have a great process that makes sure that no matter win, loser, how that shakes out, you know that the winner truly won, the loser truly lost, and there was integrity in the system. Do you worry that the president's rhetoric so, um, about free falls, cheating, rigged elections, all that, all that, you know, all those terms he's using undermines confidence in, in elections, not just, you know, whatever states he's talking about, but across the country? I want to make sure that what we do in Georgia, that everyone knows that their vote has been accurately counted. We want a fair, honest vote. And that's why we have these guardrails in place that we want. We have tremendous turnout, as Mark just mentioned. We could hit over 2 million people. And that was our projection before COVID-19 hit. So if we end up with that, that's a tremendous success. Already, if you look at with our absentee ballot request process, that we have over 1.5 million requests versus last time this was done four years ago, you know, comparable time, we had a total of 40,000 votes cast. Right now we have over 500,000. So that is what we're looking for is making sure everyone understands we have a great process in Georgia. We have record registration. We're having record participation. And so we will stand, you know, our model up against any state in the union. So, Mr. Evansberger, I want to paraphrase what you're saying and ask you if, if I'm correct in the way I'm paraphrasing. Um, you, the, you, I, I hear you saying that the, you believe that the potential for fraud, and you cite the Carter Commission back in 2007, whatever Five. year, you'll probably know the year. Five, thank you. Uh, saying that there could be problems with absentee ballots. You say there is the potential for more fraud with absentee ballots, uh, which is in keeping with what President Trump has said. But con contrary to that, you also believe that any state, certainly Georgia in this case, can put in place safeguards that will prevent uh, the fraud. Is that an accurate way of summarizing what you're saying? Right. The, the whole election process 
is really a very methodical process. And once you set your rules, I believe that you can't change them, you know, just because things aren't going your way at the end of the first quarter, someone doesn't get four downs, the other team gets three downs. You have to set your rules and the guardrails, and you play by that. And you're always looking for making sure that there's the integrity of the vote. And when you do that, then I think that the voter, our citizens, feel there's confidence that what you really want to, we all are rooting for our person, our team to win, left, right, down the middle. It doesn't, that doesn't matter so much, is you want to make sure that you, you want your guy to win, your lady to win, but you also want to know that you win fairly. And I think when we have that integrity, and that's what your county election officials are working on, is maintaining you know, the right guardrails and, and maintaining that election integrity. And I believe that in Georgia, we have struck the right balance. And I'm very uh, grateful for the hard work that our election officials do, especially under COVID-19. Uh, we've done yeoman's work. We've done a great job, and I'm really proud of their efforts. So, Mark, I want to um, at, at get you involved in, in answering or, or in, uh, commenting on, on, on this. Um, Mr. Raffensperger said that, you know, we have rules now in place that prevent vote harvesting. Uh, in fact, when we've heard President Trump talk about voter fraud, he talks about harvesting all the time as the as one of the places he believes it can happen most frequently. We know that the only example in recent American history of vote harvesting took place in a very prominent case, Mark, in North Carolina, where it was a Republican consultant who, in fact, did harvest votes and uh, and rig the election in favor of his candidate. That's really the only example we have of vote harvesting in that sense. So there's that, and you're welcome to comment on that. But, but the additional thing I want to mention is that Mr. Ravensburger has put in place a, a task force of mostly law enforcement people who will be looking to see if there are examples of fraud that need to be investigated. As you know, Mark, groups like Fair Fight and others have said that they believe that this isn't a legitimate task force, that it's designed to suppress the vote. Mark, uh, take up any of that. Well, we'll kind of have to see how it all plays out. A lot of it will depend on how many ballots actually are rejected and what the reasons for those rejections are. In the 2018 election, we saw a good many of ballots elect rejected, especially in Gwinnett County, because the signatures didn't match. And Gwinnett County had stricter standards for accepting ballots than almost any other county, and that resulted in some lawsuits and reevaluations of those ballots and some of them being accepted. So we'll kind of have to see how this plays out. Will there be substantial numbers of absentee ballots rejected in the primary? And if so, for what reason? And then we'll watch and see what this voter fraud task force does in response. Will there be many cases or will there not be many cases and how are those handled? Now, the voting rights groups are certainly concerned that the voting fraud task force that Secretary Raffensperger set up will be used in an, aggr- an aggressive manner to try to um, find examples of people who have voted legitimately. And we don't know if that will be the case or not. Certainly, we don't want fraud to be in our elections, and we don't want people to vote who aren't allowed to vote. So, again, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. So thank you for summarizing that. Mr. Effensberger, how do you respond to the to the uh, voting rights groups that have said 
that uh, this is an effort at voter suppression? Well, our uh, task force that we've set up is actually bipartisan. In other words, we've picked prosecuting attorneys that are Democrats, prosecuting attorneys that are also Republicans. And there are two county election officials that are on there. I don't know what they are, and that's a good thing. And that's uh, most election officials uh, really are, are, quote, nonpartisan. You never know their uh, political identification. So it is a bipartisan effort, and I think that's very important. Whenever we do anything in an election process, we really want to do that in a bipartisan method so that it doesn't look like we're just pushing our way because we have more votes. And so we can bring in both prosecuting attorneys from both sides of the aisle, then that's really having, you know, double sets of eyes on it to make sure that we're following the law, that we are being very balanced. We're also being very methodical in the approach. And I think that's a good thing. Um, Greg, I want to get you back in, but let me ask one more question, if I may, for, for you, Mr. Raffensperger. Do, do you believe that there were um, issues that arose during the 2018 election? Uh, Mark mentions Gwinnett County's high rate of rejection of ballots, the large purges of voter rolls before you became Secretary of State, um, exact match, that sort of thing. To a certain extent... Do you believe that the state has given groups like Fair Fight uh, reason for being skeptical? And is it your job now to try to clear up their concerns? I really believe that many of these organizations, uh, they want to litigate uh, and they want to win elections by litigation, or they're using this really a way of generating, uh, making um, money for their organizations to, to, to really throw out these emotional issues that there's really not supported by the facts. And so it really gins it up and it, it really plays with people's emotions. And that's why uh, as an engineer, what I've tried to be wherever I, you know, it's so important for me to be fact-based and to have our people be fact-based. What is the, the logical, methodical way of handling an election, that everyone knows what the rules are and we treat everyone the same. I think that's the most important thing is that people, all voters are treated the same. Here are the rules and let's play by the rules. And like I said, we want to make sure that everyone gets four downs, they get a first down, no one gets three, the other side gets four. And so I think uh, that's what we're doing, you know, with our, you know, office here. We're really uh, pleased with House Bill 316 allowed us to purchase new machines. We're pleased with uh, being able to join ERIC, the Electronic Registration Information Center, which lets us update our voter rolls objectively as opposed to being perceived as subjectively. So if people move out of the state, then we can update the voter rolls and take them off with our other member states that are part of that. So those are the type of things that I'm looking for to be very you know, objective as opposed to being perceived as being subjective. Greg, do you want to get back in here? Yeah. Mr. Secretary, you, your office, because of the pandemic, sent um, ballot request forms to 6.9 million active Georgia voters um, in, in advance of this primary. Is it time to consider expanding that and taking similar steps to with the November, special, the November general election and future elections because of the popularity? It seems like the popularity of this program with uh, expecting 2 million-plus turnout. 
Well, we want to make sure that we have a successful June 9th primary. Then we know we'll have a runoff in August, and I think we, it's one election at a time. And then we also look have to look at you know COVID. It really came on to Georgia very quickly. Uh, session was suspended halfway through, and no one's been in session for two months. So I think it's really one day at a time. Let's get through this June 9th. We're going to go back and we'll do a 360 assessment and look at what would be the best practices, you know, for the next elections coming forward. Is it safe to say you're open to the idea if this, if, if it goes as, as successful as you hope it will, to, to expand this to future elections? Absolutely. We want to make sure that uh, we have the best system in place based on the situation on the ground. And like I said, uh, COVID-19 was totally unanticipated. And that required us to rethink, you know, and use what tools we had in the toolbox. And we've had no excuse absentee voting for 15 years. And that was just an avenue that allowed us to really reach voters and make sure that we had a successful June 9th primary. As long as we have you here, could could I ask you a few, if you will, these are some very pragmatic questions about about the election. Um that people have been asking me about, and I'd love for you to clear first clear up one concern that I've gotten more more emails about than anything else. This notion that when people got their absentee ballots, there was the instructions said they were supposed to mark the ballot and put it inside an envelope that was enclosed with the mailing and send it back. There isn't. A separate envelope, I understand. So people are instead were instructed to fold over the ballot and send it in that way. That caused enormous confusion. I'm sure you know that. You've obviously heard that from people yourself. But then, having talked about that on the air and saying to people, don't worry about it, I got a email from someone in Gwinnett County who said, well, no, there was a second envelope in my... Can you please explain this? When we were uh, talking to our vendor... Many states, what they use is what's called a privacy sleeve, and they call it a privacy envelope. And just looking at the picture of it, we assumed it was truly like a closed envelope. And what we told voters is that the purpose of that um, was to make sure that when you hold it up to the light, you can't see through. And so we've updated the instructions to uh, for the voters for all the ballots that they've received since then. When I received mine, it was uh, pretty obvious. But uh, if people were concerned, I said, then you can go ahead and tape the sides uh, and secure it on all four corners to make sure that someone can get into it. But that was something that we got up uh, on our um, website very quickly, secureVoteGA.com, to explain that. And then we also uh, made sure that, you know, we updated that in the next batch of ballots that went out. Yeah, and my goal also, in that is not to be critical of the off. Go go ahead, you finish. Well, I was just going to say, and also some of the county, local county elections, they did the fulfillment of some of the ballots, and they had an, an envelope. So it was, uh, by and large, though, we used our major vendor for the big, you know, bush push of ballots that we got out. Yeah, my goal in mentioning that was not to be critical, uh, but rather to reassure all of people out there who are listening to the show that they will not have a problem. Their votes will be counted, despite the fact they don't have the envelope they apparently thought they had. So I appreciate your clarifying that. Can you do this? We have to take a break. But if you can give us maybe five more minutes, I think the three of us, I think we should talk briefly about the conditions 
in terms of safety, security, sanity in polling places leading up to in the early election and on June 9th and, and how your office sees people being protected if they do in-person voting. Can you stay with us long enough after the break to talk about that, Mr. Effensberger? Yes, I can. Absolutely. Okay, thanks. So let's get a break out of the way, and I'll be back in a minute with uh, Brad Raffensperger, Greg Bluestein, and Mark Nisi. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Mark Nisi, I know one of the things that you've been tracking uh, as you've been watching how this election is unfolding is uh, concerns about enough poll workers being able to run elections across the, the state. Um, I got an email from uh, Marilyn Marks, who's the executive, executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance. She wanted me to ask uh, the secretary a lot of questions, but I think the first and most pertinent one is she says, will poll worker shortages, she says of as many as 500 in Cobb, I don't, I mean, don't know about her figures, 130 in Lowndes and similar shortages across the state, going to uh, impact on the election. Mark, you're paying attention to that sort of story as well, aren't you? That's right. And I've talked with many election administrators across Georgia counties. And it is true, you know, poll workers, especially those that are older and uncomfortable being around others and at risk of catching the coronavirus, are backing out of working on Election Day. And that will make the job more difficult Um, However, all these election directors in the county say, you know, they still have enough poll workers. It's just going to be a strain on them to get by with fewer poll workers. Each precinct has to have at least three and larger precincts just as a matter of making it work need more than that. But uh, when I talk with Cobb, Gwinnett, DeKalb, Fulton and others, even I called some of the counties in southwest Georgia and South Central Georgia, where have they have particularly difficult cases of coronavirus outbreaks, they all say that they have enough. And yes, they'd like to have more poll workers, um, but they think they'll be able to get it done. Greg, we should get Mr. Raffensperger to address this, but but let me throw this out as an additional element, and, and you can comment on it, and we'll get uh, the secretary involved. Um, we know that uh, in early voting, and certainly after the first day, there were some polling places that reported longer lines. They, they were for, for a variety of reasons, one of them being uh, the efforts were being made in some polling places to sanitize everything after a voter mm-hmm. voted to clean, to wipe the screen. Um, there were, so there were those issues. There were issues with some people who had requested absentee ballots but then decided to show up in person, and that required a process that the poll worker would have to go through to clear the absentee ballot. So, so Greg, uh, we can anticipate—I think as journalists, we're going to be watching on June 9th to see what kind of lines are, are possibly going to form out there. Uh, it, could be, uh, it, it could be quite a long day for a lot of people. 
Yeah, what kind of lines and, and what kind of delays um, in reporting, you know, we saw in, in 2018, there was, there was more than, you know, there's about 10 days of limbo in the governor's race. Um, you know, we're, we're hearing from some campaigns who are expecting a long limbo because it will take, you know, longer to, to count all these ballots. But my question for the secretary is um, what Bill said about the precautions these polling places are having. Are you satisfied with what you're seeing? Are there areas for improvement for, for some counties to, to take the steps necessary to make sure that voters are safe? Well, we have sent out an awful lot of PPE uh, ourselves. We've sent out over 50,000 um, masks. Uh, we've sent out sanitizing sprays and wipes uh, and also have a grant program to help the counties defray some of those costs. And when so voters show up, they'll notice first off that there's uh, excess six feet on center so that you will be spaced out, you know, in your line. So a 60 foot line is really 10 voters as opposed to having 20, 30, 40 people, you know, jammed in a typical line. Uh, also, your poll workers have masks and gloves on and everything is wiped down. So that does uh, require additional times as you come in and vote. It has to be wiped out after wiped down after you use it. We've also sent out uh, styluses, so that touching the, the ballot marking device with your finger, you can actually touch it with a stylus, and the styluses are wiped down. And we provided three styluses for every ballot marking device, so there was enough, so you weren't waiting on that. So we've worked on that part. So it is, you know, I think as relatively healthy and safe as possible. Uh, we've also encouraged voters to wear masks, but you can't, you know, require that, obviously, but we encourage it. But the issues that we also have are a polling location, because many of those were being held in retirement communities, retirement centers, also in churches. And right now, you know, those aren't available to many of the counties, so they've been scrambling on where can they have these precincts. And then, obviously, the average age, as Mark Macy just mentioned, the average age of a poll worker is 70 years old plus. And so many of those are just saying, I don't feel comfortable coming out. So that's, you know, strapped, you know, and made it challenging for the county, but they're working through that. So we have had uh, over 75,000 people vote in person, about 15,000 people a day. But that's why we come back to, we recommend voters that you can avoid those lines because the shortest line that you're going to have is at your kitchen table. When you pull out your absentee ballot, you fill out, make all those requests, sign it, and mail it back to your, your county election office. That's the shortest line that you're going to have. And so that's why we're highly encouraging that, just because of the situation that you have when you show up to vote in person. And on top of all of this, Mark, what a great time to roll out new voting machines that people and poll workers all have to learn how to deal with, Mark. That's right. Um, every in-person voter will use these new voting machines. Um, and, you know, it will be a slower process because of the social distancing requirements um, that will keep fewer people in polling places. So that's something else to be concerned about for in-person voting, um, voters might have to be prepared for waits because they will be more spread out before using these new voting computers. And they are somewhat similar to our old voting system in that they still use touch screens, but the, they are new touch screens, they're larger touch screens, and they are connected to computer printers that will print out a paper ballot that voters can review before they turn in and they the voter themselves slips the printed out ballot into a scanning machine and then it's deposited into a locked 
ballot box. So this is the largest test of this voting system yet. It was tested first in November in a few small special elections in counties, and then it was used for a couple of weeks before the presidential primary was canceled during early voting in March. And now they're everywhere. And so it'll be really interesting to see how they work and whether voters like using them. A question for Secretary Ravensburger. Um, you know, part of the paper ballot process is the ability to audit um, results and make sure they are accurate. Um, are there plans to audit results sooner than November? Are we going to see any of those audits after this primary, or is that still kind of a work in progress? We, are, we will be auditing some uh, of the races right now because it is a work in progress. We are really honing down you know, the exact audit process, but we understand uh, the General Assembly would like to see every election, the ability to audit that, you know, going forward. And so it's something that they've done in other states. Uh, it took them about six years to do it. We'll get it done much quicker than that. But we'll be auditing, you know, some of those races just to really, you know, uh, hone down our methods and our procedures to be able to do that for the very important races that we'll have, you know, in the years coming ahead and also this fall. And Mr. Secretary, I wonder, how is the may, voting system what... working so far? Uh, voters love it. Uh, the ballot marking device, even though we're telling everyone we recommend you vote absentee, when people do show up and they can touch and feel and, and hold that um, paper ballot in their hand and look at all their selections before they've cast a ballot, it's just giving them that renewed sense of confidence. To that point we made earlier in this about voters you know, having that restored, that renewed sense of confidence that their vote will be counted. I think the paper ballot really helps because it just gives them that uh, belts and suspenders, the, the actual, the actual uh, ability to see your ballot before you've cast it. Um, I know we've got to let you go. Can I ask you one last question, if, if I may? Um, we, with the huge volume of, of uh, absentee votes coming into you, um, what do you imagine, and, and how delayed do you imagine the results in some of the races uh, could be? I, I, we should make sure that people who are listening understand it's up to each individual county. They count the ballots. The Secretary of State's office uh, col- collects that their votes, but, but it's up to the individual counties to do it. Are we likely, Mr. Secretary, to see very long delays in close races, particularly before we know who the winners are? I believe that the counties are preparing for that. I believe that the, uh, generally the, the smaller counties will have their results uh, very timely, and the larger counties just have more to go through. And that's one of the challenges with the absentee ballot is that you have really the ballot inside the envelope, you know, separating that. There's a time element in that. So we're working on mitigating that. Uh, but then just running it through um, the scanners, it just takes a little bit longer. Obviously, when you show up to vote in person, uh, the, they, those ballots are being scanned continuously over the 15 days of early voting. And all during the election day, those ballots are scanned during the day. So all you have to do then is press that button that tabulates everything. Um, so we will, um, you know, work on getting that as quick as to, to everyone as possible. We understand that you don't want to wait, you know, a week to two weeks to get those results. Uh, and we will be getting those out as soon as we can. Uh, obviously, may some some cases will be projections just because they won't be 100 uh, percent tabulated. But we understand how important that is to voters. Well, Mr. Secretary, you've been very generous with your time this morning. Thank you so much for uh, talking to us. Uh, I know all of us wish you well in uh, running a successful 
election here. We all care about having our votes counted uh, accurately and in a timely manner. And uh, thanks for joining us to uh, be part of Political Rewind today. Take care. Well, thank you, Bill. It's been my pleasure. Why don't we do this? Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, Mark and Greg are going to stay with me, and we'll talk about some of the other political news we're looking at today. Greg Bluestein, uh, you had a byline story this morning, uh, picking up on a story that Wall Street Journal was first to report on, uh, which says that uh, DOJ has uh, looked at possible insider trading by a number of members of Congress, including Dianne Feinstein, by the way, uh, and Kelly Leffler as well, of course, and they have cleared Leffler of any concerns. They've found no reason to believe that she engaged in inside trading. As uh, Greg, we know that DOJ doesn't confirm this sort of thing very often. They keep their investigations as quiet as they can. But we have every reason to believe that that's accurate and the, the Leffler people have uh, uh, gotten themselves out of what for a while was really a cloud over her campaign. Yeah, I mean, they're full on victory lap mode right now. Um, there were celebratory tweets, exclamatory uh, gifts. There was her spokesman channeled President Trump with an all caps tweet that said, clear exoneration, total witch hunt, thank you. Uh, attacks on the, uh, the quote, fake news media that reported um, on the uproar over her stock transactions. But what Doug Collins, her most formidable Republican opponent, has made clear is that this is not over yet. There's still questions and scrutiny into the stock transactions. It's just the Justice Department is no longer um, investigating any potential wrongdoing. They, they seem to have – they appear to have cleared her of any, of any um, federal scrutiny for possible insider trading. Well, so what does it mean if it's not over? If the feds have said there's no insider trading here, what are we talking about? Uh, the cloud. I mean, there, what, what, what you're going to hear Doug Collins um, continue and some of probably his, his Democratic, um, all, some of Kelly Loeffer's Democratic opponents as well, is talk about how it still seems, still smells wrong. The, the fact that she was trading um, all these stock transactions um, during the pandemic. Um, even though she says she did nothing wrong and that it was third-party uh, groups that were trading the stocks for her, not herself, they're going to still say it doesn't it doesn't hold up to the smell test. And they can say that all they want, oh, but what okay. she can say is that the right. feds are no longer investigating her. Yeah, you know, the other thing that's interesting about this, Mark, is that um, it, it raised another uh, – a larger issue in some ways, and that is it really, we already knew, and voters around the state who were getting to know her already knew that Kelly Leffler uh, was wealthy, um, but uh, this story really brought that to the forefront in an even sharper way, and, and I would think, Mark, it's the sort of thing that, uh, uh, that her opponents, Democrat or Republican, will mark uh, be glad to use against her that in a time of uh, so many people being unemployed, struggling, uh, there's a very wealthy woman out there who even has to worry about the multi-millions of dollars that she has in stocks. That That's going to be a, a, an issue for her to have to overcome, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think especially um, between her and U.S. Representative Doug Collins, um, this is the main topic that voters are talking about right now, especially among Republican voters, where they're asking um, 
about um, Senator Leffler's finances and um, U.S. Representative Collins certainly latched onto that to use that to attack Senator Leffler. You know, Greg, I think it was Edward Lindsay on our show. I think it was Edward. And, and if I'm wrong, I apologize to whoever it was. Uh, when we talked about this question of uh, Leffler putting her private jet into a commercial saying she was using it to help people get back to this country who were stranded, uh, uh, using, uh, making big donations to help people who were struggling and dealing with COVID-19, or uh, Phoebe Putney Hospital, I think she gave a million dollars to. Uh, and we said, well, that's the sort of thing that, you know, some people are going to push back against. They're going to say, my God, she's so rich. What does she need to be in the Senate for? I thought, and I do think it was Edward, made this point. You've got to you've got to play the game that you're you've got to play the hand you're dealt with. That happens to be who she is. There's no point in trying to pretend it's not true. And so, yes, she emphasizes her ability to use her money in powerful and meaningful ways. And and that's the only hand she can play. I thought that was an interesting point, Greg. Yeah, not only is it who she is, it's it's one of the main reasons the governor Kemp picked her for the job. I mean, right after. Um, her name was announced formally as the U.S. Senate appointee. Um, she immediately let word slip that she was willing to spend $20 million to defend the seat. And that's an advantage that no one else in Congress can, well, maybe one or two other congressmen can actually viably say they can spend that much money across the nation, right? Um, she, no, no modern Georgia uh, candidate has, has this vigorously dipped into his or her own bank account to, to run a campaign, and far from downplaying her wealth, she's emphasizing it. You mentioned the PPE uh, donations and the, the million-dollar con- contribution to Phoebe Putney. Um, she's donating her salary. She's highlighting her charter jet that at first she was trying to keep under wraps. Now it's, now it's a, a mainstay in her campaign commercials. So she is emphasizing her wealth because she, 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 I think her campaign now understands that that's part of why she's in this job in the first place and why I tried to hide it. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to another interesting story that uh, has popped up in the last couple of days. We, we know at this point that uh, President Trump, uh, two days ago, uh, he uh, angrily uh, accused the governor of North Carolina, a Democrat, Roy Cooper, of uh, using COVID-19 as an excuse for holding down the uh, potential for crowds to gather at the Republican National Convention, which is scheduled for Charlotte. Uh, And, uh, you know, the vice president in an interview after that said that, yeah, maybe the White House and the Republican National Committee are looking at other possibilities, maybe Florida, maybe Georgia. And then yesterday, uh, Governor Kemp said, sure, I'd be thrilled to have the Republican National Convention come to Georgia, to Atlanta. Greg, it's an interesting kind of story, but the idea of moving a national convention and all that's involved is, it's also an unlikely one, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, highly unlikely. It's fun to write about and and to speculate about. And sure, sure, if if, if I'm in Governor Kemp's shoes, I'm... 
But look, uh, it, it's a, it's an enormous amount of work. Charlotte has been getting ready for this for about two years right now. Um, you, you're talking about federal security grants of $50 million that are already in place. You're talking about hotel and, and logistics preparations and technical considerations. Um, the organizers are getting ready to turn the Spectrum Arena, take over the Spectrum Arena in, in a month, really. Well, actually, in mid-July, and work on it for a month just to raise the floor and, and get it ready for tens of thousands of people who might be coming. Um, there's still no indication from, from Charlotte officials whether or not they're letting the, the event go as planned full scale. Um, but certainly um, this week after the president's tweets, you saw more energy um, from Charlotte organizers uh, essentially saying that uh, they want written plans for how the RNC will deal with COVID. But it looks like it's still going to go forward there. Uh, but, you know, for, for Governor Kemp, it's an opportunistic way to say, hey, we're, our doors are open. Um, in Florida, you see the same thing. The governor there said the same. Um, governor DeSantis said, Welcome aboard. Come on in. If you, if you guys, the water's fine down here. So certainly in Atlanta, yeah. um, it's not a uniform position, though. You saw Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms raising a very big concern about that. Well, you know, I thought it was fascinating that, in fact, North Carolina public officials, uh, their public health director particularly, uh, pushed back on that, but basically turned the whole thing around on the, on the RNC and said, as you pointed out, Greg, Prove to us you can do it safely here. Tell us what your plan is. I assume that means how do we social distance at a Republican or Democratic national convention? Um, I, I, it'll be interesting to hear how the RNC responds to it. Will they, in fact, respond with some sort of plan, or will they just continue to have a rhetorical attack led by the president? We, we don't know yet, Greg, how they're going to deal with that. We don't know how they're going to do with delegates coming, hundred, you know, thousands of delegates from around the nation coming, um, 15,000 or so reporters that were planning to be there, um, so all, including, including me and I think you. Um, so all that is still up in the air, um, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and what component will be virtual? Uh, and, and look, Democrats are having the same issue. There's not a, there's not a threat to leave um, Milwaukee where the Democratic convention is going to be held, but Democrats are having the same issues as, as to, you know, what portion of it will be virtual, what portion of, portion of it will be live, and what the optics will look like, because now they're back to back. And so what optics would look like if one is more, you know, uh, public and, and celebratory than the other, how that would, would appear to the American public. You know, Mark, it's interesting that um, that the virus, the coronavirus, appears to be changing uh, maybe for the long term many aspects of our lives and the way we're calculating how we're going to live in the future. Um, so, for instance, I don't go to the grocery store anymore. I now have a shopping service that comes. I may continue to do that well after the virus. Um And the reason I bring that up is we've known for a long time that people believe, political people believe, that national conventions have long since stopped serving any practical purpose. Um, And and yet the coronavirus doesn't seem to be changing the desire, especially for a president who can't wait to get in front of a big crowd again. He wants that convention to be cheered on by thousands of people in, in the hall in Charlotte or wherever it is, right? Sure, absolutely. And, you know, as a 
news reader and news viewer, I love watching the conventions. You know, I think it's really exciting when you get to see um, both parties um, rally around their candidates and hear the speeches and listen to all the pomp and circumstance that goes on. Um, I don't know if it will feel the same this year when some elements of it are virtual and we're looking at it. I, I don't know. I mean, even if the convention doesn't serve its traditional purpose of actually nominating the candidate, we know who the candidates are going to be. It's still a um, interesting and exciting way to see what the parties are doing. So I look forward to seeing um, how that looks this year and into the future. Bluestein, you know why Nisi thinks they're so great, don't you? Because he doesn't have to spend 20 hours a day working them. Last time we had to write about five stories every hour. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Uh, we, we're running out of time. Uh, real quickly, um, uh, Greg, uh, uh, the State Chamber of Commerce, the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce now have said to the legislature, pass a hate crimes bill even in this shortened session that you have coming up. Uh, and yet the state Senate still seems a little reluctant to move forward. What do we anticipate there? Yeah, we still haven't heard from Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who might be the most important player in this because it's already passed the House. He's the president of the state Senate. Uh, we're not sure where he stands. We've asked many, many times. The governor said he's receptive to it. He basically, he said he wouldn't veto it. But this is an important development because two major uh, business groups, perhaps the most two, the two most prominent business groups in, in the state, have both signed on to this effort. Both said, and, and this is very rare, they don't often – issue joint statements, and they did today, uh, saying that it's time to, to pass a, a hate crimes measure that reflects Georgia's values. Okay. Um, thank you for that. We were going to have a lot more conversations about that as we move toward that uh, a session restarting. Mark Nisi, you've got about 40 seconds to go back to our opening uh, segment with Brad Raffensperger. As an observer of all that's been going on with this election, um, give us a quick sense of how you is it unfolding in a way that you think voters have reason to be confident in? In are there still big problems out there? Just give us a very quick assessment before we run completely out of time. Um, there are several challenges going forward, and I think they're going to cause a lot of difficulty for voters. Certainly, this is an emergency situation in the coronavirus, but. You know, we're going to have some real obstacles. One, we talked about this earlier, lines at the polls. Um, I think it's inevitable, you know, um, just the time it's going to take to disinfect the machines and the fewer people allowed in each precinct, people are going to be waiting a long time. Also, getting absentee ballots in on time. You know, many people still haven't received their absentee ballots, and they have to be received by election officers at 7 p.m. on Election Day. And that's going to cause a lot of voters um, to wait. And then we'll be waiting to see what the results are. You know, I don't think we'll get all the results on election night because it's going to take so long to count all these absentee ballots and voters are going to be asking who won. And we might not know that for days. For day. Uh, Mark Nisi, I really appreciate your giving us that summary. It's an important one. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us, Mark. Greg Bluestein, you know I always love Wednesdays when you do the show. Thank you for being back. Um, And thank you for all listening today. 
We'll be back with another show tomorrow, of course. In the meantime, please take care and stay healthy. I'm Bill Nygut. See you tomorrow.